0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Emmanuel Vaughn-Lee. He's a director, producer, musician, and composer, and he's directed and produced numerous award-winning films, including Yukon Kings, in, coming out in 2013, Thousand Sons, What Would It Look Like?, A Game for Life, and Barrio de Paz. And his film that we're going to discuss today is called Elemental, It's his first feature-length documentary about three very impressive eco-warriors. Emmanuel is also the founder and executive director of the Global Oneness Project, a Webby Award-winning online magazine. Now, prior to his work in film, Emmanuel performed and recorded as a sideman with some of the biggest names in jazz. And he's also released two critically acclaimed records under his own name, Previous Misconceptions in 2002 and Borrowed Time in 2005. And I might add that all these accomplishments have been crammed into just 33 years. <laughs> Welcome, Emmanuel.
1: Thanks for that that embarrassingly (laughs) long bio.
0: (laughs) Well, I want our readers to know what they're dealing with. You know, we have this kind of wave of 30-somethings who really look set to change the world. So I am really pleased to have you with us today.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, get to chat with you today.
0: You were fully launched as a successful jazz musician. So what inspired you to make films?
1: Um, I, I started playing music at a young age, first playing cello at seven um, and then transitioning transitioning to bass when I was around 11 years old. Uh, and then when I was 13, someone gave me a Miles Davis record and I was bitten by the jazz bug and ended up dropping out of high school and pursuing a jazz career and started playing professionally when I was 15. Wow. Um, and that was my life um, for the next ten years. Um, I studied at Berklee College of Music, uh, composition, performance—all the usual suspects, you know, that you would pursue um, if music is your love. And uh, and after after university, I was I was touring and playing a lot, 300 plus nights a year. And at a certain point, I started to get a little burned out, and um, which I think a lot of artists go through, you know, you're doing what you love, but it's also can be challenging just to keep that enthusiasm and creativity alive with um, the schedule of, of playing that much. And just as I was a kind of at you know, a point where I was a bit tired and a bit fed up with some of the, some of the gigs that I had at that, at that particular time, I think it was back in 2004, 2005, um, somebody gave me an opportunity to say, well, you would like to come work on this film? And it was kind of out of the blue, something I had never thought of working on. But I was just at that right moment where I was kind of like, well, I a little bit, a little bit depressed, I guess, in some ways about, about how my music career was going as far as, um, being able to do certain creative things. And, um... I said, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try film. Why not? I'm going to give it a shot. I'm not giving up my music career, but this sounds exciting. And I jumped right into it. And I didn't think I would abandon my musical career, but within a year, my musical career kind of started to fall by the wayside. And I wasn't taking uh, offers for jobs anymore and playing as many gigs. And I was just exploring, I guess, film with the same enthusiasm that I had explored jazz as a young musician. And, uh, within a couple of years, you know, music was really not, not, not really part of how I was making a living anymore. And I was devoting myself fully to making films.
0: Now, if I understand correctly, this film, um, featured your father, Llewellyn Von Lee, who was a Sufi lecturer and author. Um, what was your spiritual worldview
1: growing up? Um, yeah, my, my father is, I guess, less of a, a lecturer, more he's an author and a, and, a, and a Sufi teacher. He does lecture a bit, but um, I, he's more of just a, a kind of traditional Sufi teacher and, and writes many books. Uh, I grew up, uh, I guess, in a very unique environment, in, you know, kind of a in an ashram, I guess you could describe it, in North London. Um, my parents owned a house, and their teacher... Um, lived downstairs uh, in the house that we owned, and my mother looked after her. She was a a woman in her 80s, a Russian woman who traveled to India in the 1960s and been trained by a Sufi master, who then asked her to bring this particular lineage of Sufism to the West, which was a very bizarre thing to happen in India at the time, A, to pass along tradition to a woman, and... And uh, and a Western woman at that. Um, And she came to the the UK and taught there. And my father was one of her uh, students who then took over from her when she became too old to teach and brought the tradition to America. So I grew up in a house um, filled with people who were coming uh, to to learn about uh, Sufism and about mysticism and about uh, God and about spiritual life. So I think one of the first words, me and my sister always joke, is one of the first words we heard growing up was, shh, you got to be quiet, they're meditating. <laughs> because every day, downstairs in the flat below where we lived, 80 to 100 people would come for satsang and would be meditating. So I was around that world from a young age, and of course, the values of Sufism and and a mystical tradition seeped into how we were raised in every respect. Um, For us, it was normal to spend a couple hours a day meditating, even when we were kids. I meditated when I was five or six. I started meditating seriously, and I didn't think it was strange until I was sharing it with my friends at school a couple years later when they were asking what meditation was and why you'd want to sit still. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's just very much who I am and everything I've done in my life, whether it be music or now film or any kind of media, I think stems from that background that I had, which was based in uh, a mystical tradition and is based in a mystical tradition.
0: How fascinating. And you are one of the if, uh, founders of the uh, the oneness Project The Global Oneness Project, so I assume that that also stems from this tradition
1: well, we, well definitely I mean, I think as I said, anything that I do I think is, is related back to to that grounding is growing up uh, mm-hmm. in, in mysticism and one of the basic tenets of mysticism, regardless of what kind of mysticism, whether it's Jewish or Islamic or Christian. Um, or the variety of other traditions out there, that there is an understanding of this idea of oneness, of interconnectedness, and in mystical traditions, is often referred to as like the oneness of God, you know, and it's given a much more, let's say, religious or spiritual description. Um, but I was always interested in how that idea and that basic philosophy, which underpins mysticism, um, can be expressed outside of religious and spiritual perspectives, especially at a time when the world has. Is and has been will is it, becoming smaller and more um, people are realizing that there are connections in the way that they had been viewed as separate uh, in the past so that was that was kind of I guess the inspiration for the global oneness project was to start uh, a, a project that would explore that idea in a multiple multiple arenas kind, different kinds of media different kinds of uh, of sectors meaning how does this idea appear in environmental issues? How does it appear in social issues? How does it appear in political, economic, or in art, or in media, or in culture? Um, and so we started exploring those issues through film and then through photography and through the written word and through multimedia. Um, mm-hmm. At the beginning, using a, a web platform to, uh, to explore that, and then as we grew to broaden our platform to include also traditional media, television, theatrical uh, released content and educational content DVD, and of course the web where we started.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And in fact, your your shorter films have been picked up on on uh, PBS and and uh, other networks. If exactly,
1: uh, and but I but I think that where they've been viewed the most has been online, where they've been seen millions of times. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just because the web allows for people all over the world to, to tap into content that they're interested in. And what was really interesting to see is you know, we kind of rode the tide of interest in video on the web when we started. There wasn't YouTube. There wasn't iTunes. There, all the platforms, no, no Netflix uh, streaming, all the ubiquitous platforms we kind of take for granted. They weren't there eight years ago. Um, And so we kind of rode that wave of of, of video on the web becoming, um, you know, an alternative way to get content out there and uh, tapped into a global audience that were interested in these issues, that were really interested in both the spiritual ideas, but, uh, but also you know, what those, how those ideas then translated into what's going on in the world, both the good and the bad, how we can deal with the problems we're facing, how we can overcome the problems we're facing um, by acknowledging uh, that the problems are based on a dualistic mindset and how we can use you know, holistic thinking, systems thinking, um, building communities based around those ideas as a way forward. Uh, so it was fascinating to see kind of people becoming more and more interested in that uh, across across the world.
0: It's hard to think back eight years to a time when there was no YouTube. It's become such a part of our lives now. Um, when we're talking about the the, the oneness, um, and and you're talking about the aspects of the problem and the solution, the people, this is what you have pulled into this documentary elemental. You've followed these three activists who identify a problem, and then set out to do something about it. That's what I think is so positive and and life-affirming about it. Tell us about the inspiration for Elemental.
1: Sure. Um, Well, one of the inspirations was to tell a story that did not just outline the problem about what's happening in the world. Um, There are a lot of documentaries, many of them that are informative and educational, that outline problems, especially environmental documentaries. And I think those are valuable, but I think the problem is is that they don't empower or inspire people to then counteract the challenges or face that adversity. They feel overwhelmed by it. And I think that as a culture, we have become overwhelmed by the, the, the data and the bad news, which is very real, that we're facing, you know, environmentally. And so they kind of are more easy to turn off and say, I can't deal with that. But I think if you tell a story that, that includes, you know, how people are coming you know, dealing with these challenges and coming to terms with the reality and pushing forward and trying to create change, I think that has the possibility to include people and bring them in and see that it's possible to, to, to deal with some of the problems if we, if, we, um, if, we, if we embrace the challenge and we persevere and we, and we do something about it. So that was the inspiration, and, 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 and to tell a story that, that really explored our fundamental relationship to the natural world, which all of our subjects face, and that many of the problems we're facing in the world become, are coming from a place of separation, how we've said you know, that nature is over there, and it's a resource for us to extract when needed, but not something that's a part of our lives um, in the way that our subjects view um, nature, and how that gives them the inspiration to... to to soldier on and to meet the challenges they face and try and create uh, solutions.
0: Indeed, indeed. Let's talk about uh, the, the characters. How did you find them? How did you select them?
1: So when we started the process of making the film, we had a certain set of criteria that we wanted all of our subjects to share. We knew that they were going to be, you know, in different parts of the world, and the stories were going to be disparate. You know, they were there were going to be very different stories because um, we wanted to to tell a global story and uh, and and use the differences to to our advantage, if you will. Um, but. What we knew we had to have is a certain kind of base all the characters shared. So one was a, a deep personal connection to the natural world, which they all had in their own lives. That they were deeply connected to on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, um, in different ways. Um, Jay, through how he found solace in the natural world by escaping childhood abuse, for Jandera by being grounded and rooting in a cultural tradition which acknowledged the sanctity of nature and water as a central part of everything. And for Ariel, whose family grew up in the bush in this uh, indigenous tradition where nature was the source of all life. Um, and that uh, is present in all of their, you know, in, in, in all their stories. So, so if we had that connection, that would allow us to, to create parallels between the characters. Um, the other thing was that they were all outliers or outsiders, as Malcolm Gladwell describes, um, those kind of people, people who don't play by the rules, who don't think um, inside a box, who, you know, are, are challenging the status quo. They make up their own journeys as they go along in some ways. Um, so that's also a very fascinating aspect of their characters, which is interesting to explore. Um, and, and share uh, and and that people who had a narrative we could follow something that we could spend time with capturing as as something unfolded, and, and of course, that they were connected by the issues by water, uh, primarily by climate change, by energy, uh, so with these three um, aspects we, we set out and uh, on a search and first found jay Harmon who uh, who actually his office was close by mine in in in, in uh, the Bay Area. It was kind of a coincidence. And then Rajendra and Ariel, after you know spending some time looking at a variety of different potential subjects, and, and once we met these people, we thought you know these are fascinating people. They're complicated people. They're they're flawed people. They're doing really interesting things um, in interesting places uh, that are going to allow us to craft a really unique story um, that will both show people who are fighting on the ground like Ariel and Virginia and people who are trying to offer technological solutions or ideas based from a different way of thinking. So uh, that's where we started and then we just dove in and spent a couple of years uh, with these guys.
0: How long did it take to create the film?
1: About three years.
0: Wow. Where did you find your funding? I mean this is, films are very expensive to make and, and you were all over the world.
1: Sure. Um, well, we, we, we had two funding sources. Um, one was from Foundation Support, and the other was from individuals who donated um, and supported the film. Over the years, I've built up a, a really great community of people all around the world who loved the content and ideas of the Global Ones Project. And we reached out to them early on and shared that we were going to be making this film and and if they would be interested in supporting the film. Um, And we had different tiers of support. And depending on what kind of support you gave, you got different uh, things, whether it's uh, a special thanks from the movie or invitations to special screenings or signed DVDs, kind of the usual things that filmmakers do. Mm -hmm. And... um, we got a great response from our community, so uh, many people, uh, several hundred people over the course of the film donated anywhere from 25 or 50 to several thousand dollars. Um, and so that combined uh, generosity from our community and um, from the foundation support allowed us to tell this story, as well as a lot of sweat equity thrown in by quite quite a few people. <laughs>
2: Well,
0: I, I must say that I think the investment has been well worth it. Uh, it's it's a very moving film. Let's let's talk about the the three characters. You have Erin Duranger, who is a uh, First Nations uh, young mother in uh, Alberta, Canada. Um, in fact, how did you find? How did you connect with her?
1: Well. Um you know, we found um, Jay and uh, Rajendra first, and and we were like, well, we really need to have a woman's voice here. We can't have a bunch of of older guys doing their thing. There needs to be a woman, at least one woman's voice in the film. Um, uh, And and so we were looking for, and we also realized we wanted to have a North American character Um, for practical reasons. We didn't want too many subtitles in the film. Uh, We wanted to have a story that would relate to North American audiences. Um, and somebody who was younger, too, who would be able to reach a younger generation. So we started looking at, 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 at people who, who, who could fit that and who also, um, you know, uh, met the other criteria we had that I described. And around that time, I just started learning about the tar sands, um, and it kind of blew my mind about what was happening up there. And I thought, hmm, that'd be a really interesting, uh, you know, connection between both Jay and Rajendra's work and what they're doing um, with this the largest industrial development in, in the world the number one source of foreign oil for the u.s. Um, destroying this this incredible landscape and this these water systems which this ancient culture is dependent upon there were so many connections between both Jay and Rajendra so we started looking for people and uh... we went up there and met a bunch of different potential candidates and there weren't that many people up there who were doing something that we could follow over a year and a half so we kind of narrowed it down and and, uh, and we met Ariel, and she was very passionate, and she was very um, engaged, and she was very human. And she had kids, and she was juggling all these different aspects of life um, that I think you know, are really interesting to observe. It's not just somebody who's doing something against the world, battling you know, these giant corporations. They're dealing with the basic aspects of life, like how do you balance you know, uh, your cause and your family life? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she's also a young mother who then has another child during the course of making the film. So, I think she allowed us to to, to balance the other stories and to bring a very human element to the film, um, which 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 I think was really interesting to include.
0: Uh, it, it was indeed fascinating when you talk about the um, the the. Tar sands is being mind-blowing. I was gobsmacked when I heard that they cover an area larger than England and Wales together.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's huge. Um, you, know, the size of, you know, people compare it to the size of Florida or the size of England and Wales. That's what people don't realize. It's, it's a huge area um, in northern Alberta. And, you know, because it's out of sight, out of mind, people don't think about it. Um, And luckily in the last few years, especially since, you know, we started making this film, there has been a lot more attention about the tar sands, um, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline, its connection to fracking. And There's a lot of people in the U.S. and all over the world now who realize the dangers of this kind of energy extraction and uh, that it has both, you know, to the the local level, the people on the land, uh, where the energy is being extracted, where the resource is being extracted, but also to the globe as, as a whole with this kind of, um, you know, energy-intensive extraction and the, the impacts that has because the amount of deposits that are there, so it, yeah, it, it's huge. And and, it's, and you know when I, when I went up there the first time, w- what struck me was it felt like I was in Mordor, you know, what what Lord of the Rings yes. felt like. You know, it was just this dark, dismal place where everything was dying. Um, and everybody trying to make money off of it. You know, guys driving trucks for a hundred thousand dollars a year, knowing they can just get as much money as they can, um, not caring what happens. I mean, it, it was kind of like the, the almost the the extreme that you see maybe in other parts of the world, just all in one place, just bigger, 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 more, 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 dirtier, dirtier, dirtier. Um, uh, and you see some of that in the film. You know, you see these images of these giant. Pit mines and the extraction and the pollution um, and and the people who um, you know are affected by this
0: i I thought it was interesting that um, I think uh, Ariel was talking about people uh, her 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 family and and, and friends um, who had no other form of employment i mean it 's kind of a catch twenty two because uh, as they despoil the natural environment, they no longer can hunt and fish. So their only option is to work for the very companies that have killed off their environment and given their kids cancer and, 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 uh, you know, just made it, uh, as you say, a Mordor type environment. And yet you have the human issue of they have to feed their families. What do they do otherwise?
1: Yeah, I mean I that was that was really a, you know, an interesting an interesting um the moment when we were up there and realizing how complicated it was. And of course, when you do research and you're you know, not there and you haven't met the people, it's very different. You're thinking, oh, this has to be stopped. And they, they want it to be stopped. And that's, that's what they want. And you go up there. And of course, that that's true in one hand. But as you see, on the other hand, they need to feed their families and their way of life and how they used to feed the families has, has been taken away. And so they quite consciously are destroying their own you know, participating in the destruction of their own homeland. But there's no alternative, because they don't have money to relocate. They don't want to relocate. That's their home. It's been their home for generations, for millennia. And... You know they struggle with this, uh, and as Ariel described, when you know her friend talks about how he knows he's going to hell because he's participating in the destruction of his own people's land, but what else can he do? Um, and I think that that plays out in many ways all over the world. I mean, it's the, the, the argument that people have in the U.S. That the reason why they say we should, you know, have the Keystone XL pipeline, it isn't oil security that's the number one argument people have; it's jobs. Indeed, you know, and that these jobs are going to bring you know the the, the security we need for, for for our our countrymen. And the reality is, of course, those jobs are are short term jobs. You know, they're not the kind of long term jobs that people really need. And it's this idea of short term gain versus long term sustainability, which uh, which is which is everywhere now and is really challenging for people. Uh, so I I hope that that something can change up there, and I think. People like Ariel are doing the best they can to try and provide alternatives. But until, you know, there is going to be, until extraction slows down or stops, that's going to be a source of, the number one source of income for a lot of people up there.
0: This brings us back to the oneness perspective, which is really looking at the the cause and effect relationship of of actions. Right. Um, And not just the immediate, uh, but the long term. Effects. Uh, there, there is just this book um, published as an ebook by David Sassoon called the Dilbit Disaster. Uh, Dilbit is diluted bit- bitumen, and there was actually the the beginnings of uh, of the XL pipeline. There was a break in this pipeline carrying the same stuff that would go through the XL pipeline, uh, which luckily for them happened just as the BP disaster broke in the Gulf, so nobody really focused on it. But all of that stuff just sank into the watershed and uh, because the, the diluent, because this stuff is like molasses, as it says in the film, the, the the additive that they make to allow it to flow evaporated when the pipe broke, as pipes do, and that stuff is just kind of there like peanut butter.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 there's been there's been so many issues with uh, with spillages and leaks of the pipelines. You know, since they've first had pipelines, you know, since the '60s and '50s, um, and 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 more so now. I mean, the other thing people don't realize is that there there are thousands and thousands of liters or gallons of toxic waste spilling out every day from these giant tailing ponds into the Okoboji River and its watershed. Uh, up there in the tar sands. Um, they have these giant tailing ponds where they take the water that they've used to mix with the bitumen um, and, and and clean it and extract it before they send it south. And that water sits in these giant tailing ponds, which are, you know, these earthenware dams, essentially lined in plastic, and they leak. Um, and we're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of gallons every day. They're leaking into the, into the, into the watershed there. So there's, there's the stories, the, the, the spills we hear about like that with the pipeline, and there's just the everyday reality of what's happening up there. So it's, it's pretty grim in some respects.
0: Well, now, um, you, your, your other character, Rajendra Singh, um, tell us about him.
1: Rajendra Singh is a really interesting guy. He, he was a trained doctor. Um, who in the the late 70s, early 80s was stationed in a small village in Rajasthan. And um, at that time, Rajasthan was going through a tremendous drought. And uh, people were moving away from the from the country to the city, so they could they could have find work because their farmlands were no longer arable, and and they were struggling, and uh, all because of a lack of water. And he ended up giving up his um, you know practice as a doctor and working with the villagers to reestablish this ancient rainwater harvesting. Uh, practice, which people in Rajasthan have been doing for thousands of years, which was capturing the monsoon rains and the few times a year that it rains, and sinking them in the ground to create year-round rivers, to create lakes, to create, um, you know, a water table that can support uh, people living in a desert. And so he did that over um, 15 years, um, revitalizing seven rivers and uh, bringing thousands of villages back to life, changing the lives of millions of, of Indians in Rajasthan. And he uh, gained a lot of recognition for this work, and people call him the Water Gandhi. And um, in the late 90s, um, he started turning his attention to other, other rivers, including the Ganges, which is the lifeline of India, with more than 500 million people dependent upon it for their primary source of water, whether it be drinking water or for agriculture. And uh, And so we follow him um, as he's on a pilgrimage, a journey to raise awareness about what's happening to the Ganges and to stop people um, from polluting the river, uh, to try and engage people to take the responsibility of themselves and become stewards of the river. Uh, and we spent 33 days following him from source to sea, um, uh, which was quite an experience to, to see the Ganges, you know, that that close for that long, um, and and see what would happen as he. You know, took action and confronted corrupt officials, and 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 used his stature to try and raise awareness about what's going on, which ended up resulting in a, in a, uh, a meeting with the prime minister of India just at the end of the journey, um, which had a very positive outcome for action that uh, is being taken uh, upon the Ganges to, to clean it and devote resources and to make a certain stretch of it a, a national heritage site. So that was quite a remarkable experience to see the impact of one journey with one man, essentially, over over just, just six weeks, what could be done.
0: And it was interesting that when he confronted villagers, you brought out that same dynamic tension between uh, people working in factories that are... Um, spewing their effluent right into the Ganges, um, you know, and they're living at a subsistence level. We know how much people in India are paid in factories, right. and um, and fearing for their jobs, so they just want him to go away. It's this short term versus long term.
1: Yeah, no, it's it, it, yeah, no, it, it, the same, the same, the same dynamic, and just a, but just on a slightly different, you know, scale and. Um, yeah it 's tough i you know it plays out everywhere where people want jobs they want security or they want you know electricity or they want uh, in india it 's you know people want want some of the you know things that we 're used to here in the west um like electricity or or running water mm-hmm. and um they 're willing to sacrifice their environment to get that. So it's tough. It's tough. And he met a lot of resistance, as we share in the film, of people who, like, like, like villagers who, who didn't want him to be there, and also people who felt that, you know, he did. where is his motivation lying? Is he really uh, have the interest of the people in mind? He's just coming through for one day to one village. Is he going to be here in a year to see what happens? Mm-hmm. So I think what, what was really interesting was to include kind of that uh, side of the story, because um, I think a lot of people feel that, you know, right here in the U.S. you have environmental activists or politicians or people coming to your town for a day talking about you should do this, 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 and this, and they leave. But are they there to follow up? Are they there to, to see what happens and engage you in the long term? Um, and so... That's something that plays out in, in the story with Rajendra.
0: Indeed. I, I, it was interesting. He repeated several times that when a country is run by corporate interests, community objectives get left behind. And this is something that uh, anybody in any community around the world could say with absolute certainty.
1: Yeah. No, that was that was another very prominent theme that came out in the film. You know, an aerial story, too, is it mm-hmm. such a, you know... It's such a tough thing to to deal with when you've got corporate interests on such a powerful level, um, you know, global level. And, and how can you preserve natural resources and communities when you're fighting that?
0: the other the other thing that we have to grapple with uh, and i think rajendra also said this is that half the world's population live in cities and they're disconnected from nature they lose this connection to the sanctity of nature to the sanctity of 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 the world the planet um I think it is really up to this this younger, innovative generation uh, to use new ideas, new technologies to innovate within the landscapes, the cityscapes that we're, we're uh, inhabiting and come up with less um, destructive ways of being there. And this is what your your third question um, Subject Jay Harmon is all about. Tell us about him.
1: Well, Jay's you know a really remarkable guy, very interesting character, very interesting life that he's had that led him to kind of uh, put his I guess his faith in what nature has to offer um, on many levels. You know, on a psychological and spiritual and emotional level, but also for him a very practical level, how nature can be a teacher. to show us the way how we can um, build systems, you know, industrial systems, uh, design systems, you know, how we can engineer based on how nature does things, because he looks at what nature does and says, nature's been doing things for billions of years. It's worked out the kinks. Why don't we look to it as a, as a, as a guiding principle? Um, you know, and you know, he, he would always say that, you No, know, it seems like man's way is often you know, to, to blast its way forward until it gets to its to its goal, you know, literally go in a straight line, and no matter what's in its way, you blow it up, you get it out of the way. Whereas nature moves fluidly in spirals and in curves, and it goes around obstacles. That was really interesting, um, you know, to to to, to under to, to for me to, to really understand that and that became. It
0: really almost sounds like the male-female principle.
1: We, completely, completely, and, and and Jay really does believe, you know, that. Some of many of the problems that we're facing come from this disconnection from nature, um, you know, from moving into cities and and, and from being uh, removed from the natural world, because that provided, as you said before, uh, you know, an understanding of, of, of sanctity. Um, and when you take that away, where are you? You might be lost a little bit. Um, and so he tries to, to, to bring that back by basing ideas for living in the modern world, for living in cities, and, and dealing with the problems we have um, based on nature's principles.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, tell us a little bit about his spiral. I, I, I thought it was fascinating where you filmed these meetings that he had with potential funders, and there was this one guy from China uh, saying that the uh, the Chinese were prepared to take a risk on these technologies because their problems were so acute.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so you know, the spiral. Uh, Jay Jay many years ago froze a whirlpool, um, and then reverse engineered what he had frozen to to get an algorithm, which is basically a three dimensional version of the Fibonacci sequence. Um, which is pretty fascinating that he's able to do that and then a lot of his most of his ideas have been based on that understanding and one of the ideas you know the main idea that we follow him trying to implement in the film is this this atmospheric mixture this way of of trying to adjust the uh, the levels of pollution or the thermoclines the heat layers that have um, ha- have become so static because of global warming and because of pollution um, and he gets uh, interest or an investor works for the Chinese government who is much more inclined to try kind of maybe let you could say you know outlandish ideas than the American government would be partly because they don't have the red tape that the, the, the U.S. government has or Western governments because of the regime in China, um, but also because the pollution levels in China are horrendous, especially in Beijing, where they're interested in, in implementing his atmospheric mixer. Um, so that was really interesting to, to, to be privy to, to that kind of uh, discussion going on you know, between people who represent interest for in the Chinese government and, and, and inventors who are coming up with ideas and finding ways to, to get them out there in the world.
2: If
0: I recall correctly from the film, he uh, used his fan in a refrigeration unit and was able to uh, see a ninety percent savings in power usage.
1: Yeah, no, he, it's not. It's not the same fan. It's the same concept. Basically, all of Jay's ideas are are stemming from the spiral and 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 using. That understanding of uh, water and air flow. It basically, he says everything flows in a spiral. And if you understand that and you implement the way water or air or energy flows using that understanding, you're going to have tremendous energy savings. So, his refrigeration technology was based off that same principle, but a different application than we see with the atmospheric mixer. And he also had a water purification system based off that principle. So, a lot of these really remarkable energy saving technologies all come from. Just looking at how uh, you know uh, a river moves naturally through through a landscape, or how um, you see you know a, a snail shell in, uh, having that same shape. So if you if you extract the math behind that, and then you apply it to technology, these tremendous energy saving um, devices and te- uh, technologies emerge.
0: And. Indeed, if you could get those applied within our uh, energy production devices, um, I would imagine that we could produce energy much more cheaply. And, you know, what, what is the, the, the crux of civilization? I mean, the engine of civilization is energy. And that is why oil is such a central, um, commodity for, for global conflict. Um, if we could provide, um, f- f- either free or, or, you know, much more efficient energy more widely, we could raise the standard of living across the globe and lower the pollution. So people, inventors like Jay Harmon, um, have potential solutions that should be exploited to the maximum. And yet they're running against vested interests in maintaining the oil economy. And so, he doesn't have the the backing that he needs. I mean, he's only one of so many different inventors and and, uh, entrepreneurs with viable solutions that are not getting the funding to try them out. And yet that is what we should be exploiting everywhere to try and give ourselves a clean future as humanity. So that's why your film is so important. I feel your film is so important, Emmanuel. It's getting people into that mindset that we have these problems. Dedicated people are putting their lives on the line to implement solutions, and we have to get behind them.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Um, You know, I think as Jay said this, um, I, don't, I think off-camera quite a bit, You know, the, all the ideas are there. I think he even says it in one scene, too, in the film, the ideas are there. But it's about implementing the ideas. That's the challenge, getting people to realize they need to put resources behind making these ideas a reality. And even if they know the ideas work, getting the resources to put, um, to put behind is a challenge. And, you know, we see in the film just the very basic problems he deals with is, you know, dealing with the global, you know, economic slowdown and, and then the, the scarcity of resources for new ideas that come from that because of the burst bubble. Um, and so I think that if there were resources that were allocated to Jay's or so many, like you said, so many other people like him, uh, the, the, the change could be monumental. Um, and, and the problem is that the pace is so slow now. You know, it takes so long to get, you know, from A to B um, when it really shouldn't because the resources are there and the skills are there, and the inspiration, the ingenuity is there. It's just about making it all come together, which is so hard right now.
2: Mm.
0: I mean, if we can put people on the moon and and send spaceships to the stars, why can't we solve this problem?
1: Exactly, and and I think people have used that analogy so many times, um, you know, in light of dealing with climate change. There, There can be a solution if there is... Uh, you know, uh, people coming together and agreeing on something. But I think that's the problem, is people don't like to agree, Mm. (laughs) as we all saw in Copenhagen, which we all had such hopes for.
0: Yeah. So what projects are you working on now? You know, when I was researching you on the web, I saw that you had actually been working on a ballet based on Charlie Chaplin's life. Did that ever come to pass?
1: Uh, That, you know, that was a project that I started many years ago, back in 2003, uh, with uh, Scott Salinas, who co wrote the score for Elemental with me. And we both are big fans of Chaplin. And, just thought it could be a fascinating uh ballet uh you know our 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 interest was writing the music for it um, but you know Chaplin is so much about movement um, and what he was able to accomplish with with movement and expression and music in his films um and so we actually contacted the Chaplin family because they're very protective about everything to do with Chaplin which I found out through the process of researching this and and uh and uh, we shared our idea with them and they uh were open to it they actually wanted um they wanted to to take it to the next level but uh it was actually a question of finances at that time just like Jay where we couldn't raise the money to get where we needed to and, and I think that project has, has since fallen a little bit by the wayside um you know, could be interesting to, to, to do again, but uh, it's been 10 years since since really uh, since, since I was working on that last.
0: Okay, well, any angels out there who have a passion for <laughs> Chaplin get in touch with Emmanuel.
1: Uh, but but you know, I'm just this film is just coming out. You know, it's it's, it's been out on theaters for a few weeks now, and it's now available on iTunes. And so I'm just kind of coming to the end of pushing this film out there into the world. So could now have a little space to work on a few other projects. Um, that I'm looking forward to diving into because uh, it took about four years to make this film. So in, mm-hmm. in it, and the reality with filmmaking now is that it's, it's, you're not just a filmmaker, you're also uh, you know, part distributor, then you've got to be a public speaker, and you've got to be a promoter and marketer and press person. You've got to have to be involved in all of it, which is interesting, uh, um, but also doesn't give you the time to, to, to really develop other projects you know, yeah. beyond yeah. the idea stage.
0: Yeah. So, what is your next project?
1: Um, I have a couple of little things in the works. Um, nothing I can really talk about, um, uh, you know, publicly okay. too much. They're two. They're two kind of in the early stages. One's a long-term uh, feature doc, which is going to start work on in the next few months, um, and the and the other ones are kind of short. Other short short projects um, uh, that that hopefully will will come to light in the next year or so but uh, unfortunately not formative enough to, to, to share with you and your, uh-huh. your listeners.
0: Um, I, I saw that you were involved in this, uh, you know, birth 2012 global oneness thing. Are they ha- having this um, annually now, or was it just the one shot?
1: No, they're, they're going to have it annually uh, again. Apparently it was a huge success, um, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world got involved, which is really mm-hmm. great. Um, so they're planning on doing it again, and uh, I think I have some involvement um, speaking on a couple of panels or sharing some films as part of the of the lineup. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's really interesting. I think the more awareness we can get out there about this basic tentative understanding of, of interconnectedness and oneness, I think that can go a long way um, in changing people's behavior and, and, and getting people to, to see what might be possible.
0: Indeed indeed and that's the the purpose of your your online magazine
1: well yes i mean I, and also just to to have a place where people can go to explore these threads between culture and ecology and beauty and and and, and, and and this kind of holistic idea, and you know, and also to have an experience because we sh- we share stories. So many different kinds of stories. It might be a photo essay. Uh, it might be a, uh, an article. It Might be a film. Some might be more directly exploring some of these issues. Some might be very indirect and more subtle, but per- create an experience uh, of something. Um, so I-, I think that we need more experiences that, uh, that create something that's trans. You know, that that gives you a trans tra- transcends. You know. Uh, so, what's going on and takes you somewhere and, and connects you to, to something that's real and, and the more we can do that I, I, I think the better, I think people are, are hungry for it, they need it, especially in kind of our fast-paced, cluttered world, online it's cluttered and fast-paced offline it's cluttered and fast-paced and if you can slow down and experience something that's deep and powerful and meaningful, um, and there are so many incredible people who are doing deep and powerful and meaningful things through art through story, through the written word um, and sharing that with people that's inspiring
0: and what is the website there
1: it's a global org.
0: yeah
1: this month we have a a a wonderful essay by a poet surprise winner um uh, robert haas wonderful poet all about rivers and stories it's a beautiful essay and a wonderful photo essay uh by jane baldwin called kara women speak she spent a Seven years um, in in Ethiopia with the, the Kara women uh, it 's a tribe there who are being impacted by a dam project that 's being developed so an ancient indigenous culture under threat and she has these beautiful portraits over the years capturing the women as their lives change and the back and their environment changes. Um, and then uh, a film about reindeer wrangling from the Sami people in, in the Arctic Circle, and uh, a little <laughs> about a clown in Berlin, and uh, a wonderful essay by Bernie Krause, who spent 40 years recording the sounds of nature um, and, 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 and the language that nature speaks. And he talks about that. So really very diverse and interesting uh, contributions from people who, you know, together are all exploring these same ideas from different perspectives.
0: I actually spent some time on that site, and it's absolutely luscious, well worth worth your time to visit. So it's org. yes? That's correct, yes. Without the word the?
1: Exactly. It's okay. onenessproject.org. Okay, great. It's an ad-free, free publication, so just go there and enjoy it to your heart's content.
0: And where can people view your film Elemental?
1: Elemental uh, is available now on iTunes. That's probably the easiest way for everybody um, to see it, um, unless it's playing in a city near you. Um, it's it's available on iTunes in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., and then in uh, other territories uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so you can just search for Elemental on iTunes and download it or rent it. Um, it's uh, playing, I think, I think uh, in, in, in the Northwest. It's playing in Portland um, on the 12th at the Hollywood Theater. Um, and in Bellingham uh, on the uh, 8th and 9th, the Pickford Film Center. Um, and then a variety of other uh, screenings all over the country. If you go to um, ElementalTheFilm.com, uh, then you have a full uh, listings of all the screenings, as well as um, you can buy DVDs. Um, and also organize your own screening if you feel inspired to bring the film to your community. We offer a variety of different ways to do that. So I encourage people to come to the website and you can watch the trailer and learn more about the film and see where it's playing. And, and maybe you can bring it to a town and, and, and add to our screening list.
0: An inspiring film indeed. So um, Emmanuel Von Lee, filmmaker of Elemental, um, composer, jazz musician, and person extraordinaire, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, it was a real pleasure to join you. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Next week, our guest will be Dr. Bruce Lipton, the groundbreaking cell biologist who wrote the best-selling book, Biology of Belief. He'll be discussing his new book, The Honeymoon Effect, The Science of Creating Heaven on Earth. Well, don't we all need to learn that? If you enjoyed our show, you can download our mobile app and you'll be able to listen to all our interviews and keep up with our latest books and films on the go. They're all on New Consciousness Review and you'll find the link on the website at ncreview.com. Now sit back and enjoy our track of the week by members of the Positive Music Association. This week's track is called City of Light by Gina Sitoli, a new transplant to Portland, Oregon. City of Light. was City of Light by the dynamic Gina Sitoli. Gina is an award-winning singer-songwriter and her music and unique one-woman show, A Cabaret of Consciousness, reflect the principles of ancient wisdom, new thought, and new science. Her music has been used in a film by NASA and on international CD compilations for world peace. To find out more about Gina's music and performances, go to her website, TheCityOfLightProductions.com. You know, Gina is just one of a growing group of musicians who are members of the Positive Music Association. They are all using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. So to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to PositiveMusicAssociation.com. And I do hope you'll check out our website, ncreview.com, for the latest in really fascinating, eye-opening books and films on every subject dealing with raising awareness of what's really happening in the world and beyond. So, until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.